0: First Samuel, starting to read at, at sorry, first Samuel chapter three, starting to read at verse one, and we're going to read the whole chapter. And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. It came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place, and his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see. And ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was, understand that as tabernacle more than temple, and Samuel was laid down to sleep, that the Lord called Samuel. And he answered, Here am I. And he ran unto Eli and said, Here am I, for thou callest me, or you called me. And he said, I called not. Lie down again, go back to bed. And he went and lay down, and the Lord called yet again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And he answered, I called not, my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed unto him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And Eli perceived that the Lord had called the child. Therefore Eli said unto Samuel, Go and lie down. And it shall be, if he call thee, that thou shalt say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood. That's a fascinating statement right by itself, that the Lord came and stood. And called, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And then Samuel answered, Speak, for thy servant heareth. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel. At which both the ears of every one that heareth it shall tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will also make an end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. And therefore I have sworn unto the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offering forever. And Samuel lay until the morning. I believe that wording specifically gives us insight in the fact that he did not sleep. And opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel feared to show Eli the vision. And Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, Here am I. And he said, What is the thing that the Lord has said unto thee? I pray thee, hide it not from me. God do so to thee and more also if thou hide anything from me of all the things that he said unto thee. And Samuel told him every wit or every detail and hid nothing from him. And he said, that's Eli said, It is the Lord, let him do what seemeth him good. Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and did let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan, even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Amen. With the help of the Lord this morning, I feel impressed strongly of the Holy Ghost to preach this message. Answer the call. Answer the call. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Feel your presence, Lord, in your house today. God, we just want to be your children, want to be hearers of your word. So, God, I pray as we open your word together this morning that you would speak to us, Lord, from the youngest to the oldest, Lord, from the newest to those who have known nothing else in their life, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us in your house, Lord, as we begin this year together, Lord, let it be directed and guided and ordained by you, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Bless the Lord. In the Old Testament record of the prophets of men and women who were called by God to be His voice, to be His mouthpiece, Samuel stands at a fairly unique juncture in the history of Israel. His ministry begins at a time when the people of God have been through a period or a season of decades of instability. You read uh, particularly the book of Judges leading up to First Samuel. The time of the Judges saw the people of Israel sway between worshipping God and worshipping idols and being under oppression from one enemy after another enemy. And there was a pattern where they would cry out to God and He would send them a judge or a prophet or a deliverer. But they would soon fall into their old ways. In fact, sadly enough, in Judges 21 and 25, The very last verse of the book of Judges, it says that in those days there was no king in Israel and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. It's a terrible statement of the spiritual condition of those that were supposed to be the people of God. Samuel would go on to be the prophet that anoints Israel's first and second kings, King Saul and King David. And he is described, the prophet Samuel is described as having an incredible ability to hear from God with clarity. He could hear the voice of God with such clarity that it it says, and we'll probably reference this again, the Scripture says that none of his words fell to the ground. In other words, when he spoke as God's mouthpiece, he was always on target. He was always accurate. He never got it wrong. And It is easy for us (coughs) to read of such people as Samuel, And to be awestruck by his connection to God. And to possibly imagine ourselves being used by God in the same way. And there's nothing wrong with that, I don't believe. But so often what happens next, the next step of our thought patterns is often that we begin to reread our own personal list of the reasons why that will not be possible. Or of the reasons that our circumstances make that challenging or make that too hard we begin to say well if what about if only this was in place or if only that or or once i have this sorted out or once i have that taken care of then i might be in a place where i'm able to experience some of the things that samuel experienced or do the, some of the things that samuel did and to be used of god and it's a very simple concept this morning but i want to challenge this church today that we need to consider the circumstances that Samuel found himself born into. When you think that you have a reason to put off the right response to the call of God. Samuel was born to a father by the name of Elkanah, a man who had two wives, which was the beginning of troubles. One by the name of Penina and the other one called Hannah. The first wife was able to bear children, but Hannah was not. And this... Was a source of conflict, and I'd encourage you to read chapters 1 through 3 for context. But this was a source of conflict, it was a source of shame. It was an issue that caused Hannah to feel incomplete and a failure as a wife. And no matter how much her husband tried to comfort her and underline her value to him as his wife, she was desperate for a child, particularly desperate for a son, if you understand the significance of sons in that cultural setting and every year the faithful man Elkanah took his family to Shiloh where the tabernacle was located and he offered sacrifice to God out of obedient worship and that parents let me tell you something by the time I get through I hope you understand how significant that is because he had every reason not to come to God's house but as a faithful man who came to God's house to worship God He created a platform or an avenue or a stage for Samuel to become what God wanted him to become. When they got to the tabernacle this particular year, Hannah got up one day and made her way to the tabernacle. I don't know exactly where she was in location to it, but she began to pray and she prayed from the very depths of her soul. It wasn't just the now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep kind of prayer She was in anguish. She was broken. She was agonizing in prayer and her desire for God to meet her need that the Bible says that her lips moved but she made no sound. Such was the depth of the exchange taking place between her and God. She made a promise to God that if He gave her a son she would give that child back to the Lord. And observing her pray the high priest Eli in his carnality, assumed that she was intoxicated and he rebuked her, told her to put away her alcohol and sober up, basically. She defends herself and she explains to the priest that she is not drunk, but that she's sorrowful of spirit and she's bringing her petition, she's bringing her need, her heartfelt cry to the Lord. And Eli, you don't read of any, oh, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. It almost, when you read it, it almost seems like he's dismissive. He sort of says, just go your way and you know, hopefully God answers your prayer. And, uh, but God did hear her prayer. And a baby boy named Samuel was born at a very young age. We, we don't really know how old, the various opinions and commentaries, but he was still a child. At a very young age, the child is taken to the house of God. And as his mother promised, he begins to serve the man of God in the house of God. And, you know, on face value, that sounds like a great privilege. And it was. It was a great privilege to serve God. It always has been, always will. But Eli had two sons that were also in the mix. Two boys by the name of Hophni and Phinehas, who should have been the ones helping their father. They should have been the ones serving in the tabernacle they should have been the ones that were ministering it was their birthright and if you understand the old testament that was significant they were born into a particular tribe it was their responsibility to treat the priesthood very very seriously but these two boys were wicked they were very wicked they were incredibly corrupt they polluted the altar of god and they went as far as to behave immorally in close proximity to the tabernacle of the Lord. I'm trying to say that as politely as I can while our children are with us today. So much so, such was the wickedness of Hophni and Phineas, that in chapter 2, God sends a message to Eli warning him of what will happen if he does not address this situation, if he does not correct his sons, if he doesn't do what he should do as a man of god and as the high priest of god and when you read that text it seems that god actually considered eli to be honoring his sons above him that's a pretty powerful statement that he was giving his son's permission to sin and in doing so he was disregarding the perspective of god and so this is the picture This is the scene into which Samuel finds himself born. There is godlessness in his nation. There is dysfunction in his family. His preacher is not the man of God that he once was. And the preacher has two wicked boys that are involved in ministry but full of sin. So let's pause there and consider good reasons not to answer the call of God. Samuel was like, yeah, maybe another time. Right now, things just aren't where they need to be. And in chapter 3, as we, where we began this morning, this young boy is wakened in the night by the voice of God calling him. He's not heard this voice before. He's not familiar with the voice of God yet, and he mistakes it for the voice of Eli. And after a couple of false starts, Eli finally recognizes there's something spiritual going on. He seems to be quite late to work these things out, Eli. He realizes that God is speaking to the young man, and gives him instruction on how he should respond. And so God begins to speak to Samuel. And the message that he'd spoken to Eli through another prophet in the chapter before, Samuel is told of the judgment that is coming upon Eli and his house And as we read in the latter part of chapter 3, Samuel has the awkward task of telling Eli what God had said. How I'm sure he wished he could have spoken of blessing and provision and protection and promises. But a young child had to tell the high priest the most spiritually highest role, if you like, in his nation that God is going to judge you. And it's going to happen in such a fashion that people's ears are going to tingle. That's a bit of a statement saying it's it's going to be it's going to be quite confronting. And Eli just Eli resigns himself, I guess, recognizing that what he hears is from the Lord. And so, from that point forward, God begins to communicate with Samuel. Samuel learns to hear His voice with such a keenness in that fashion that, as I've already said, the Scripture says that. God did not allow any of his words to fall to the ground. That he always got it right. And this morning, I want us to understand that God still speaks. That God still calls. That he is still in this hour looking for those that will hear his voice. Those that will answer his call. That when he calls us by name, that we will say, Here am I, Lord. Speak, for thy servant heareth. God speaks to us through His Word. He speaks to us through the preaching of His Word. He speaks to us through His Word in private devotion. But He also speaks to us through His Spirit. He speaks to us in our hearts and our minds if we will listen and learn to discern His voice. The Bible says that in the last days, saith the Lord, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And it talks about dreams and visions. That's not not entertainment. That's communication. Dreams and visions is God speaking. He wants to speak to us. He speaks to us through ministry. He speaks to us through the gifts of the Spirit. He speaks to us through creation. God still speaks. And He still is looking for people that will hear His voice. And I want you to understand something today. It's not going to happen when you're ready. It's going to happen when He's ready. Often in what seems to be the least suitable circumstances. God speaks into chaos and looks for somebody to hear his voice. I wish I could tell you that every time God speaks to us, it's when your circumstances are all nicely arranged and everything's prepared and taken care of and you're sitting waiting for the call. But so often that call comes at the least appropriate time. When your nation, your family, your preacher, your brothers, your sisters may not all just be how you want things to be. He still calls. He still calls. God is not on a hold because of COVID. He's not waiting while well, it's still going on down there. I'll put it off for six months and then I'll pick up the phone. God speaks in the midst of whatever is going on. He's not going to get back to us when it's more convenient. We read in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul giving his testimony before very prolific and high-ranking leaders in the world that he was in, and he witnessed and ministered to one of them, and that man's response rings as a tragic statement throughout history. He said, almost you persuade me to be a Christian. And he says, I will send for you when I have a convenient season. Convenience is not what we're looking for. We need to hear the voice of God. Jesus himself was born into obscurity, into a nation, his people, who were under the heel of the Roman Empire. The first attempt on his life came when he was just an infant when Herod wanted him killed. He lived as a fugitive in Egypt as a small child. It seems from what we can ascertain from the scripture that his stepfather passed away when he was young. He grew up in Nazareth, which seemed to have a reputation for nothing of any worthwhile value or significance came out of Nazareth. All the wrong circumstances. But the Bible says that when the fullness of time was come, Galatians chapter four and verse four, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made unto the wind. God said, it is time we look at history and go, Lord, let's wait a couple of hundred years till the Roman Empire is fizzling away or come back a bit early before they come in and take over the Middle East. But when the fullness of time was come, God knew exactly when to declare himself in flesh. And this morning I want to impress upon your hearts that he knows exactly when to speak to you. He knows exactly when to call you. And if it's when you're off balance, he wants you off balance hallelujah ecclesiastes chapter 11 and verse 4 many of you've heard me quote this before he that observeth the wind shall not sow he that regardeth the clouds shall not reap in other words the farmer that waits for the perfect conditions will never plant the seed he'll never harvest the crop because there's always a reason to wait in the flesh there will always be a reason to wait But the call comes when Jesus says, it's time. When Jesus says, this is when I'm calling. He doesn't leave voicemail. He takes live calls. That's it. You can't read his messages when it's suitable. And there's a story in Matthew 22. It's not on the slides. Not this part anyway. Well-known story about a wedding feast where a certain king sends out invitations. The Bible says that some of those who were invited treat those invitations disrespectfully and they get busy doing other stuff and some that were invited are actually violent towards the messengers and in his anger the king sends out fresh invitations to the people who weren't really considered the first time around the poor those in the highways and the byways and whether or not you like it or not that's you and me we weren't in the first round of invitations i mean we came afterwards when he came into his own, and they received him not, and he turned to the Gentiles. That's you and I. Amen. And the king, the Bible tells us, comes into the wedding feast, and one of these guests who wasn't considered in the first round of invites is not wearing a wedding garment. And I've explained this recently, but I'll do it again so we don't misunderstand. That man who's not wearing a wedding garment was asked why he didn't have a wedding garment on and he didn't have an answer, so he was tied up and thrown out, which seems unfair to us. But when we understand the culture that the king provided them garments, be like if you were invited to someone's wedding and they said, this is the dress requirement, it's, it's black tie or it's formal, but don't worry, we've got a custom-made bespoke suit for you. I'd like to be invited to that wedding just for the suit. But, you know, and you just showed up in your, your tracksuit pants and the shirt that you mowed the lawn in the other day they'd be like, excuse me? You wouldn't have an excuse because everything was provided. And what is interesting is that the end of that passage of Scripture, in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 14, there is a statement that appears several times in the New Testament in different contexts. But this is that statement. It says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, again, when we read the Word of God, we have to try to read it through the lens that God wants us to read it through, not through our own understanding. Because when we read that verse, that many are called, but few are chosen, it seems to us like it's, it's, uh, it's uh, like a job application. You know, where a whole bunch of people apply for a job, but only one person gets the job. You know, when I finished high school at the end of year 12, I applied for a traineeship at a particular company and found out that there were 300 and something applicants to that job and i got down to the last three in hindsight i think it was because my dad had business dealings with the companies not because they had a whole lot to offer i think they were trying to be kind to my dad but i got down to the last three and i didn't make it i didn't make the cut and looking back i'm amazed i got down to the last three and many of you've experienced that you apply for a job you think you're going to make it but that you don't get the job That's not what this scripture is talking about. It's not saying that the Lord said, I'd like to interview you all and then just hand pick a couple. That's not how God operates. That is not how God operates. You see, there are some doctrines that are very misunderstood in broader Christianity today. One of those is the doctrine of predestination. Predestination means that there are things that are already destined or things already determined ahead of time. And there are some people that falsely or mistakenly believe that your salvation is predestined to the point that you basically don't have a say in it. That God has decided if you're on the blue team or the red team, already the blue team's gone to heaven, the red team's going to the other option, and you don't have a lot to do with that. That is a false doctrine. It's something that, I don't know if if it originated with John Calvin, but it is famously associated with John Calvin. As a side note, so is the assassination of oneness preachers. But you can read that a bit in church history for yourself. But the idea that you have no involvement in that process is a false doctrine. We always have choice. Choice was there in the beginning. Choice is still here today. Choice is the reason why the Lord says, whosoever will... Let him come unto me and drink. Will means whosoever chooses to. So when we read, when the Bible says that there are many that are called, but few that are chosen, what that means is what makes us chosen is our response to the invitation. It is not us thinking, Lord, I hope I get, I hope, I hope I get the phone call. I hope the Lord rings and says, yes, you can be a part of this church. I hope he doesn't turn me away. That's not what it's talking about. It's saying that he is calling and how you respond determines whether or not you are chosen. God doesn't exclude anybody. He is inclusive, but he is looking for a response. The man in Matthew chapter 22 chose not to wear a wedding garment. He was invited. All provision was made for him and he made a decision that caused him to be excluded. And that is a very strong message for us this morning, that every one of us is invited. The gospel is for all of us. And the Lord said, not only do I invite you, but I'm going to provide everything necessary. What is your response to the calling? That's what determines whether we become chosen. When we were kids, you'd get together a group of kids in the neighborhood and you'd be playing. We played every sport there was when I was a kid, but we played any team sports you know you'd have to pick teams everybody remember picking teams when you were a kid normally you'd pick the two best players to be captains so they weren't on the same team and then you took turns at picking who was on your team and there was always that poor kid that was last usually somebody's little sister who you didn't really want to be there anyway but there was all that kid that couldn't catch a cold let alone a ball you know, there was always, you know, and you, you, you always, went, oh, the, you know, you almost, you almost, went, though, some kids knew they were really bad and almost apologized for being on your team. But it's not like that in the kingdom of God. God is not going, oh, I'll pick that one and I'll pick that one. And no, he's saying whosoever will. The invitation is to everybody and whether or not I choose to respond to him. Isn't that awesome that you control whether or not you are chosen? Revelation talks about those that are called, chosen, and faithful. We've talked a lot in recent months about how valuable faithfulness is. He's calling everybody. We choose to be a part of that and we decide to be faithful. The man chose not to wear the wedding garment. Eli chose not to correct his sons. His sons chose not to repent. Amen. Amen. When we talk about that calling, we're talking about in a general sense there's a calling to salvation for all of us. There's a calling to salvation for every person. God so loved the world, all of it. There's no little asterisk there saying terms and conditions apply. He loved the whole world. And when we respond to that calling, God then begins to call us. He begins to speak to us about how we can be involved in his kingdom. He begins to speak to us about how he wants to change us, how he wants to transform us, how he wants us to grow, to mature, and, and to be involved in processes. And we find out that as mind-blowing as it is, there are things that he's put in us. There are things that he has planned and ordained for us that we can be involved in the kingdom of God. And we spent quite a bit of time teaching about this last year. It's got to get used to saying last year. But the, you know, Romans chapter 12, talks to us about gifts that god has given us talks to us about things like leadership gifts and administration gifts and and gifts of giving you know if god's blessed you with wealth it's not so you can just be rich he wants you to make a difference it talks about gifts of mercy some people that just seem to have an extra store tank of compassion that others don't necessarily have talks about all these varying gifts and of prophecy and teaching and these are things that god gives people but as he gives them to us, he calls us to use them. And then in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, this, the Apostle Paul speaks to us about the gifts of the Spirit tongues, interpretation, prophecy, faith, miracles, healing, discerning of spirits, word of wisdom, word of knowledge. These are all gifts of the Spirit that God puts in you when you get the Holy Ghost. And I've said it before and I will keep saying it. None of us got the salvation-only version of the Holy Ghost. None of us got the, you know, when you download an app on your smartphone, there's the light version that you don't pay for. None of us got that version of the Holy Ghost. Everyone that is born of the Spirit got the full version of the Holy Ghost, which comes with salvation as part of the new birth, but also with gifts and callings that God puts in us. And so you answer a call to be saved, but then God rings again. And he says, you know, I've put something there. I want you to begin to get ready to use that. And we have to decide if we're going to answer the call. And then there are gifts we know about in Ephesians chapter 4, which are sometimes called the ministry gifts. You know, what's interesting about the ministry gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, the other gifts in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians are gifts that God gives to us individually. The ministry gifts he gives to his church. He gives them to His church. Why? So they can sit up here and look important? No, He gives them to the church to minister to His people. The purpose of people that God calls into the ministry offices is so they can help the body of Christ operate in the gifts that God has given them so that we can all be involved in what it takes for His body to be edified, to be built up, to be strengthened. But it still requires we answer the call. Whatever your giftings are, whatever your callings are, you know, you, you might think, well, I'm pretty sure I'm not an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor, a teacher. So, who dodged a bullet. Dodged a bullet. But you're not unemployed. God is still calling. He's still tapping you on the shoulder and saying, you know, that mercy that you feel, I put that in you. I put that there so you could minister to that person. When the prophet who shoots straight maybe doesn't have that same amount of mercy, I've put that gift and you know answer the call and care for that person. But we have to respond. We have to respond. So if you if you haven't been called to the what we call the ministry gifts, the, the, those that are called specifically to preach the word of God, don't think you've dodged a bullet. Sometimes it feels like that, but if you're still. God is still calling. God is still calling. He's still saying, let me tell you something, young people, don't shut out on me. God is calling you as children. There are young people in this church that God has callings to ministry gifts on. And they're not to be activated when you finish high school and turn 18 and become a legal adult. You can respond to those gifts now. You can start to change. I listened to a podcast just recently brother. David McGovern a fine young man home missionary in Los Angeles reaching out to the millions of people in Los Angeles and he in this interview he talked about how God put a call in his life as just a very young child i don't remember exactly how old so don't exaggerate but i'm pretty sure it was early teens very early and his pastor he went to, you know did he made the mistake of going to his pastor and saying i feel like God is calling me to preach And so his pastor began to work on that young man. You see, how you respond matters. And he spoke about how as he went through his teen years, there were times where it felt like his pastor was tougher on him than the others. And when he spoke to his pastor, but his pastor said, aren't you the one that said that God called you? His pastor began to work on him. So young people, there's a call on your life. Don't wait now. Come talk to me. But recognize That's signing up for a process. But God is calling. God is calling. The church is still in the earth. God is still calling people to preach. He's calling people to serve. He's calling people to have mercy. He's calling people with leadership gifts and teaching gifts and the gifts of the spirit and all these things. He's calling. As long as the church is in the earth, he's calling. Church is not designed to just sort of all the power just to sort of filter out and we stagger over and collapse over the line of the rapture. The church is going to be just as powerful at the rapture as it was on the day of Pentecost. Amen. Don't think you get a pass if you're not called to preach the word. Let me make this point. Romans chapter 1. And I'm nearly done. We'll let you get home and take those masks off soon. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 1 says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. There's an awful lot in that first verse. Paul knew, firstly, his first point of identity was he was a servant. Secondly, he knew that he was called to be an apostle. And thirdly, that required something of him. Then in verse 2 he said, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. By whom? Or well, By Jesus we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. He's saying that's our responsibility. And then he says, among whom? Among those that are called to this apostleship are you also the called of Jesus Christ. God has called you, he said. In the midst of what God's got us doing, he's calling you as well. He's calling you. Now, we could have probably, I don't think it's out of line to suggest that that's talking about responding to the gospel at the level of salvation. But then I want to point this out to you in verse 7. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Say it with me, called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Each of us is called of Jesus Christ. We are invited to the wedding feast. He wants us to be saved from our sins. He wants us to be a part of his bride. He wants us to be part of the family of God. And if you've never been born again, he's calling you. He said it himself. He said, I did not come to call the righteous. I came to call the sinners under repentance. That's his primary call is for the lost that he died for, to be a part of his family. But then Paul goes a step further and he says we are called to be saints. What does that mean? If you know anything about the Orthodox Church, particularly the Roman Catholic Church, there are some prerequisites before they will declare that you are a saint. When you open your Bibles, you'll probably find that In some of your Bibles, when you go to the Gospels, it will say the Gospel of St. Luke or St. John. That's something that was attributed to them afterwards. They didn't go around addressing each other as St. Luke and St. John. But in Orthodox religion, there are some... I I looked it up, I don't remember them all, but if you die for the Gospel, you may be considered... Normally, you're considered a saint several hundred years after you've lived. So don't worry about it for now, it's, it's later, okay? You can die, you can be martyred for the gospel. Uh, another one is that you demonstrate great faithfulness, I think. And one of the ones they often look for is that there's some sort of miracle that happened during your life that you were involved in that's been uh, verified somehow. How you verify a miracle from centuries ago, I do not know. But this is, that, is, that is the orthodox understanding of what it means to be a saint. But the word itself and the way that Paul understood it and the way that Peter preached it was the word saint means that we are sanctified. If we are sanctified, it means that we are set apart. It means that once he's called us to be saved, once he's called us to be his children, he then calls us to separate ourselves from things, from practices, from behaviors, from people in some situations. He calls us to separate ourselves from certain ways of thinking, from certain ways of speaking, from certain ways of having relationships. He calls us to change everything. And we understand that happens from the inside out. It matters in, it matters out. Second Corinthians, I think it is. I don't have this in my notes. So I might have this wrong, but I think it's Second Corinthians 7 and 1 talks about cleansing us from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit it's internal and external and the bible tells us according to the apostle paul that you and i are called to be saints that he is calling us to be separated to have daylight between us and the things that we used to do to have space between the things that the world says are acceptable and the things that god says are acceptable And you need to understand something about sanctification, which is a big, long theological word. It is an ongoing process. God continues to call. He continues to say, I want to change that. I'd like you to work on that. I'm molding you in this direction so that you become the reflection of my image more and less of the old image that you used to be. We are called to be sanctified. We are called to be saints not 300 years from now when they dig up your bones under a cathedral and decide that you healed somebody's sick goat, but you are called to be sanctified now, to be set aside, set apart now. There's a call for all... The Lord's calling all of us, whether it's to preach the Word, whether it's to be set apart, whether it's to be saved from our sins. He is calling. The question is, are we answering That's the question. Are we putting it off because it's not convenient? I know that God knocks on our hearts because he knocks on mine on a regular basis. There are things that once didn't bother me that the Lord says, we need to work on that attitude. We need to sort out that mindset. We need to consider what my word would say to you about that. We need to stop hanging out with that. There's not a lot of people the Lord wants me to hang out about because most of them I go to church with but I don't work in a secular job anymore, but there are always going to be things in your life that God is molding and shaping. He's going to be calling you to be set apart. Hallelujah. You know, years ago, and this isn't in my notes, but I'm going to go there anyway. If I mess it up, we just won't put this message on the podcast. Years ago, holiness, which is part of being set apart, holiness is i think the the medical term is holistic it touches every part of your life and it must anything that god does must happen from within we've taught that heavily in the last year so i hope you understand where i'm coming from but if it changes heart and mind it must change behavior if, if there's if there's a genuine change within it, it will produce a change without and so there's always this tension between focusing on the heart and focusing on the behavior. And the reality is we've got to have a balance between both. The church has got to teach inward holiness, but we also have to give direction for how we should live. That's, that's biblical. You know, if you read the epistles, that's basically what they spent most of the time doing, sorting out junk and teaching. This is how you should live. This is how you should do this. And there's always, there's always this, you know, you'll hear people that say, we focus too much on this or we focus too much on that. And listen, that, that tension is going to be constantly being adjusted until Jesus comes. That's just how it is. And it's very easy to just say, don't do this. And sometimes the don't do this is right. I'll give you a very simple example. When I was a kid, which is a long time ago, we were taught Christians shouldn't watch television. In fact, if you were a minister, a licensed minister, you were not permitted to have one in your home. Now, today, we look at that and we think, well, actually, you go back a generation before that, they taught them not to listen to the radio. So along the way, there are always going to be things in society that we need to say this is the right response for the people of God. Now, the problem with addressing situations like that is that they date very quickly. Because I'm old enough to remember when home videos first came in. And so now there's another aspect. You know, okay, we've got video players now. And people didn't have TVs, we had monitors. So you didn't have a television. And I know many a pastor's child that when their dad wasn't home got a wire coat hanger and got it in the back of the monitor and managed to pick up TV. But anyway, that's that's the story for another time. Wasn't us, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> but the problem is society changes and so you have to and so what we do is i think it's wise that rather than simply make rules we teach principles the principle is from the old testament i won't set anything that's wicked before my eyes the new testament is whatsoever things are pure holy lovely honest all that stuff you think on those things the principle is what you put in your mind is what comes into your heart and that affects your behavior so principles are always where we have to start because principles don't have loopholes principles can be applied to every situation but the balance of that is if a principle doesn't have a practical application then the principle is useless you know I, I think i've mentioned it before when i was in indonesia one time i was talking to pastor thompson and i said to him do you have to wear seat belts by law here in indonesia and he said yes but the police don't check so i'm kind of like what's the point of the law? <laughs> if, 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 if there's no practical application, it's kind of like, you know, well, I, I believe you shouldn't do this, but I don't actually practice it. But here's, here's, the, here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. If a pastor stands up before his congregation and says, from now on, the Lord has showed me that nobody is allowed to wear Eagles jerseys. There you go. Let's, let's make a local context. I know that half the Wilkes family will leave the church because they're all Eagles fans. But just as an example, okay? That's just an example. Now, that's very black and white. That's either you obey it or you don't. Whereas if the pastor stands up and says, you need to consider the things you wear that are connected to a worldly entertainment sport, and how they may reflect on us in society. And don't misunderstand that to say, I'm saying you shouldn't wear an Eagles jersey. Don't take, that's not, that's the wrong interpretation. There you have a principle, which then you as an individual have to apply to your life, which is really the best model. Because the best model is that when things are in our hearts, we respond to those things out of the Spirit of God dealing with us more than simply just, my pastor said so. Now, there is a balance. That, you know. Again, there's this tension that's here because there is a place for spiritual authority. There is a place for pastors to say we shouldn't be doing this. I do that from time to time. I warn you about listening to preaching on YouTube. I talk to your parents about watching your kids with their internet access. That's just being smart. Now, I don't come to your house and check your internet history. I don't take your kids' iPods and go, what games have you got, kids? But you have to apply that instruction. But the challenge is that when I become responsible for those decisions, I have to listen to the call. I become responsible for the application of the principle. And if the principle is making me less holy, sorry, if my application of the principle is making me less separated than the legislation was or the commandment was, then there's something wrong with my heart. The principle is always the best approach, but it should always be to get us closer to Him, not to look for a way to go the least path of resistance. I hope you understand where I'm coming from. You know, we can make a list of rules. I had somebody, I've had told you before, we had a lady come to this church. It's probably 15, 16, 17 years ago. She walked in the door, bailed me up, and asked me for a copy of the rule book. And I was quite taken aback. I, I said, oh, a copy of the what? She said, the rule book. I want a copy of the church rule book. And I said, it's the only rule book we have. Because where she had been fellowshipping, they had a rule book. Now, that's all well and good if the goal is control. But the goal is guidance. The goal is Direction. And let let me make you a promise. If I'm aware that you're doing something spiritually stupid, I'm going to tap you on the shoulder. I believe that's my job. But the issue is that it must come from our hearts because that's where he speaks. That's where he speaks. Stand with me if you would this morning. I hope I haven't gone off track with adding that to this morning's lesson. We're talking about answering the call today. And we're not going to open the altar because you're all masked up. But Cass, if I could have you on the piano, please. We're going to pray. If you don't if you're not aware of something that God is calling you about, you need to pause and ask him to speak to you. Because if you're his child, he's talking to you. It may not be a Samuel Samuel in the middle of the night. It may not be an Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road. But I promise you that if you're trying to hear from God, He's speaking. It may be something as quantifiable as a call to ministry it may be a burden in a particular area of service it may simply be something that you know you need to set aside and you've been ignoring you've been letting it go through the voicemail whatever it is god is always speaking to us he doesn't only speak to me he speaks to you as well you the the somewhat bizarre tragedy of Samuel is that Samuel shouldn't really have been necessary. Eli and Hofness and Phineas should have been doing what Samuel had to do. I don't want to miss the voice of God and have somebody else hear it on my behalf. I want to hear his voice. I'm not interested in being a prophet where none of my words fall to the ground, but I want to be able to say, Speak, Lord, for the servant heareth. If you would raise your hands this morning and just close your eyes with me. I wonder on this first Sunday of 2022, if we could just say, God, help me to hear your voice. Help me, Lord, not to be looking for loopholes around commandments. But Lord, to have a heart that says, here I am, Lord. Speak to me, God.